evening and welcome to the first episode of season eight of Airtime. My name is David Fisher. I'll be your moderator tonight, but I am first going to hand it over to the illustrious and wonderful Miss Kitty Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> Do not, again, believe everything that you hear. Uh, welcome, as David said, to the kickoff to season eight of Airtime. And not only is it the kickoff to season eight, but this is the beginning of our fifth year in partnership with Alamo Drafthouse. So we thank them, too. This, this evening, um, as we have done for the past two seasons, we have partnered with the Richardson Reads One Book Program. And the book that they selected this year is called Sing for Your Life, a story of race, music, and family by Daniel Bergner. Um, Daniel, the author, will be in town next Tuesday evening at Richardson High School, beginning um, his lecture at 7.30. You the, the event is free, but you do need a ticket, and there are tickets on the back table over there. So on your way out, if you want to go to that great event, which is, has just grown and grown over the years, I would love to see your faces there. And the organizers for Richardson Read One Book are here tonight, and that is Susan Allison, the director of the Richardson Public Library, and her associate, Janet Vance. So please give them a hand. And also, for those of you who may not have read the book yet, this is only Wednesday. So you have until next Tuesday at 7.30 to read the book. And we do have the books for sale in the lobby through Half Price Books. So we appreciate their partnership for the third year as well. Um, and I wanted to share with you, we have, um, we have some, uh, excuse me, there are a lot of notes tonight. Uh, our upcoming events include our citywide arts and music festival on October 21st called Ricochet. And a good portion of the day will be here at Heights. So we encourage you to come. Also, for the first time, we are doing a mini film festival for Ricochet in partnership with Alamo, featuring the stop motion films of Leica Entertainment. So there will be one film each Saturday in October, and the films are Coraline, Paranorman, the Box Trolls, and Kubo and the Two Strings. If you've seen any of those, you know that they are humorous, um, spooky, but they're all family-friendly and perfect for October, so we encourage you to come see those. Dates will be posted on uh, the Alamo website. Secondly, we are um, have... No, I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, just keep in mind while you are hearing the wonderful Heather Ross and Edward Crafts tonight that we will have a drawing after the interview. So I hope I have now enticed you. Anyway, I will turn it over to David, and thank you all for being here. And one other word, it's great to see a lot of familiar faces back. It's also great to see a lot of new faces. Thanks for being here. Thank you, as I said, welcome to the first episode of season eight of Airtime, presented by AIR, Arts Incubator of Richardson, in partnership with Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson, Texas. Airtime is a signature artist interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in the Richardson and Dallas-Fort Worth area. Airtime is funded in part through the generosity of Eric Wise with Wealthstar Advisors and through a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission.
It is September 20th, September, September 20th, 2017, and tonight's creative guests are Heather Ross and Edward Crafts, directors of Opera in Concert. So please welcome them. So uh, as I was uh, reminiscing with Kitty earlier, this is my actually third, starting my third season with Airtime. So this is my third uh, Richardson Reads One book. And in the past two years, I've sort of had to weave the story of the book in with the interviewee. But this book was so perfect and had so many tie-ins to your uh, experience and expertise, so I'm just going to dive right in. Um, so the lead character in Sing for Your Life says that he just fell into opera, that it was something he was he was good at and he pursued it and persevered through it. So how did you both get started in opera? Well, I, like many people, I think I started by singing in church choirs when I was in high school. And um, I guess it was a good thing when the choir director, who was also a voice teacher, said to my parents, um, you know, your daughter has a voice that could be trained. And I thought that was wonderful. I was 14 and a half. And my parents thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, I was gung-ho. And at the time, I thought I would be a Broadway singer. And that was the only music I really knew was Broadway music. And what happened after I started studying, um, I found that the classical music was more challenging and I enjoyed it very much. And from that smart first teacher I had who kind of gave me both at first and helped me understand the classical part, I decided that I would rather be an opera singer than a Broadway singer. And that's how my very first um, voice lessons started. 14 and a half is about as young as you can really start. Uh, 15, 16, all of those ages are good. So um, sometimes children do take voice lessons, but generally speaking, the muscles aren't quite mature enough yet. So 14, 15 is probably the best age to start at and to start professional singing lessons. And um, that's what I did. So I was really fortunate. I, unlike Ryan in the book, I had a very supportive family and a comfortable lifestyle. So um, I had a, a tremendous desire to sing and a tremendous desire to improve, but I also <clears throat> was fortunate to have a lot of support. Yeah, I think that was similar for me too. My parents were not musicians, but um, they were both amateur musicians. Uh, and I remember very distinctly when I was 12, in some conversation, the name Marian Anderson came up, and I said, who's that? And my mother, I guess, took that as a mandate to educate me musically, um, and she got an opera and played that for me, which I was fascinated by. And so I started taking lessons also very early, and uh, so that, that process for both of us, we were very fortunate to have a lot of support. Um, it's a very difficult process, as is outlined in this book, and I have to say that Ryan Speedo Green had every disadvantage and still managed to persevere with great resources of uh, per perseverance, of patience, and inner strength. And you know, it's, it's an amazing story. Now, while they have different last names, they are actually married. 
Um, how did you, did you meet in an opera? Did you? Well, actually, we both were fortunate to go to the Curtis Institute of Music. Curtis Institute is in Philadelphia, and it's an unusual school in that it's totally a scholarship school, and it was started in the 1920s as a American version of the conservatory in St. Petersburg, Russia, and Mary Curtis Bach gave $9 million, I think, to run the school. And from that time on, it has been a small, very, very selective school for an orchestra and singers. There were 16 singers when we were there, and Edward and I were in the same class. And so that's how we met each other. But um, we didn't meet in an opera, but I will tell you that um, Edward, if I may digress a moment, Edward um, bought my engagement ring by singing eight performances of The Marriage of Figaro <laughs> in a, on a showmobile in the parks all over Philadelphia. <laughs> so, so that's how we met. <laughs> I, I'm sure if there are any other performers in the audience, I'm sure we have similar things of how we paid our rent and bought special things. Well, that, that particular experience was unique in that it gave me the chance to tell the story that I have had eggs thrown at me as a performer. Not everybody ascends to that level, but yeah. I, they didn't hit me because I could see them coming up through the lights, and I just move and they go splat. Yeah. But this now, was in a oh, sorry. This was in a park in a hot summer night in Philadelphia, and the young people were not too interested in *Marriage of Figaro* in Italian, so <laughs> so they decided to go to the little store across the street and um, have some fun. And I guess they enjoyed it. <laughs> now, uh, so you're you're both singers, but uh, it it looks from uh, looking at your bios and the work that you do that you you vary between being performers versus directors administrators versus artistic how does that how does your artistic family work and and how do you uh, did did one of you find one was easier or did or do you just switch back and forth we sort of do as you said we do all of that together um, opera and concert here is now in its fourth season which seems amazing uh, feels like just the other day that it started um, but we direct, we administer the group. Um, I perform sometimes with the group, uh, depending on what roles are necessary. Um, it's, we have the great advantage here that we have a great many talented performers in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, and our mandate is to provide more performance opportunities for them, and also to provide the audience with a chance to hear some works that are not done by the big companies, Dallas Opera, Fort Worth Opera. Um, there are some fascinating little operas, uh, and that's what we kind of specialize in. Now, what is it like directing your spouse in an opera? <laughs> I, that's very interesting. It's so nice that I get to tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've been, it's really fun, and we've been doing it for a long time, so um, it's it's something we're used to, and we work these out together very much. Very often in our living room, um, we'll be working out some staging or trying certain props and, and working it out together. So um, it's not that unusual for us anymore. Yeah, I was just saying on the way over here, we have to find some time together to work on that bit with the chairs. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, for the that's next typical. opera. Right. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, opera and concert, how it got started. You, you spoke a little bit about its mission. Mm -hmm. How did it come about? Well, um, it, 
we see again and again that uh, singers go through the excellent uh, academic organizations that are in this area, and there are many of them, and then once they're through school, um, if they're not yet at that level where they can sing with the Dallas Opera or the Fort Worth Opera, uh, maybe they can sing the chorus, but we try to offer them a performance opportunity that would be more than that. Um, there are also times when we need the services of somebody who is, shall we say, a bit more mature, and then we have access to the wonderful uh, faculties at these organizations as well. So um, that's, that's really uh, a wonderful resource to have for us. Um, and we've enjoyed it very much. Uh, this is our fourth season. We're doing complete operas, uh, and again, unusual ones. Coming up next uh, on November 17th, we are in Court Hall in the Salmon Center, and we are producing a, a double bill of two sp small operas called School Days, and uh, they are about uh, miseducation. Uh, so in the first one, uh, which is called The Schoolmaster, it's a rather old opera, but it's a subject that never grows old. A bumbling professor who is trying to control his class with very little effect. And the other one is called Une Education Manquée, which means um, a deficient education. It's by Emmanuel Chabrier, and it's about a young couple who have just gotten married, and they have, they're very well educated, except for one subject, nobody told them about the birds and the bees. And so they're trying to find out from their old professor. He knows nothing about it. He says it wasn't in the curriculum. <laughs> so it's, it's a very cute little piece, very French, and uh, lots of fun. Now, what do you think the experience, either as a student or as a teacher, are from, say, a formal academic to a conservatory like you were in to a private, uh, private instruction? Um, <clears throat> So I'm trying to think where to start. <laughs> the, the whole process of becoming an opera singer is exciting, but it's a long process. It takes, I would say, a minimum of 10 years of study to really develop the um, skills you need. And if you've, if you've had an opportunity yet to read the book, um, one of the things that um, Ryan found difficult when he got to the Metropolitan Opera after he had won the competition was that his skills were not on a high enough level. And that's one of the his, hardest his things. His talent was enormous. His talent was enormous, but his language skills and his musical skills were not at the standard of the Metropolitan Opera. And one of the things that is so difficult for um, all the singers in the, the, um, in the university systems is that they do really well in the university, and then they get out, and they're not where they need to be for the profession. So that's one of the things that that takes a little bit of time to, to organize. The other thing that is so difficult for American opera singers, but they do well with it, are languages. When we used to sing in Germany, we sang everything in German. We sang La Boheme in German. We sang Carmen in German. Carmen, you know, has that wonderful song that goes L'amour, L'amour. In German, it's Die Lieb, Die Lieb, which is beautiful, but it's different, you know. <laughs> So, um, we but we did have to, of course, learn to speak German fluently, and we sang everything in German. And in Italy, the singers sing almost everything in Italian. 
and um, the same in France. That's changing a little bit with surtitles now, but the American singer has to sing everything in the original language. And that's what Ryan Green found so difficult. It, it takes a long time, it takes years of study. And the fascinating thing is that when you're a singer and you're on stage, the real thing you are doing is telling a story. And you want to, you have to understand every word or you can't tell the story effectively to the, to the listener, to the audience. So that is one of the things we work on a great deal with uh, young professional singers. It's working on the languages and being able to tell the story and understand. As you can imagine, when you sing a whole opera in a language that is not your native tongue, it takes a lot of study. So if you get a new opera to sing and you get, you know, get engaged to sing it, you need, I would say, a minimum of six months of solid work, perhaps a year, to get that role performance ready. And that's one of the very difficult things for American singers. But on the flip side, I think American singers are the best trained singers in the world. And um, that's why they're so successful, because they, they work so hard and um, have had some really wonderful training. There was a spot in the book that really struck home with me because, again, um, I think Ryan Speedo Green's problems um, were extreme, but they're problems that we see with a lot of young singers. And uh, the idea that you have a general idea of what you're singing about in a foreign language, but you don't know the specifics of every single word, and so you're not able to inflect them well. There was a passage um, where he's working with a coach at the Metropolitan, and he's singing the first word. It's always discouraging if the first word is wrong. He's singing the first word of the aria, and he goes, Madamina, and the coach says, no, Madamina, and he sings again, Madamina, no, Madamina. So what's happened here is that his understanding of what the vowel sounds like is incorrect. There's no question about the, the wonderful sonorous quality of his voice, but he has not yet developed the ear to be able to define that he's not singing a real ah vowel in Italian. He's singing a uh vowel, which doesn't exist in Italian. So the Italian listener is gonna be at the very least confused if not annoyed. I mean, you know what it would be like to listen to a whole opera where there was someone speak, uh, singing on the stage in English and you couldn't understand them because they had a very heavy foreign accent. Well, that's, that's the problem. So to be able to inflect the word well, um, may I give an example? Absolutely. So um, here's, tell me whether you think what I'm saying is sad or happy. Das war ein Trauertag, das schlechteste Tag meines Lebens. Sad or happy? Right. Okay, so you got it by the way I inflected it. it did, I know one person understood that, but uh, other than that, um, who, who could understand that? But you got the idea, basically. All right, here's another one. Um, Quelle joie, je suis très heureux. Happy or sad? Right. Here's a third one. Era un'esperienza indimenticabile. Happy or sad? Did you really know? 
What I was saying was, it was an amazing experience, an unforgettable experience. But I didn't inflect that. So you were pretty much in the dark as to, as to how that was supposed to mean. I pronounced it right, but you didn't get anything from that. So that's the, the big challenge is to get past just, I know how to say this and make it a factor of telling a story. So this is actually a later question, but I'll jump into it now. So why don't, and I'm interested to hear that you sung everything in German, why don't we sing more operas in English here? Well, I think the pendulum has swung back and forth. In the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of um, opera being done in English. And then when we started with more surtitles, um, that pendulum started swinging away to the original language. And the music of the language is in the ear of the composer. So when you sing, when Bizet wrote L'amour, L'amour, he had the sound of that word in, in his ear when he set it to music. So the reason we do um, operas in the original language is because the music of the language fits better with the music of the um, the melody that the composer has written. And now with surtitles, you can hear the original sounds as well as seeing what they mean because they're little titles there in English. And I can say from personal opinion that it is a pain to learn six English translations of an opera. Yeah, All of them different. Right. You always had, to, every theater would do a different translation. and Because um, it was cheaper for them. And oh, buy, the, yeah. buy the translation that's published in the score. Right. So <laughs> and you that have to was, pay royalties. Yeah, then. that was annoying because you've just learned one and now you have to try to get that out of your head and learn a new text. Well, and even just the notion of translation, how I translate the word red or sadness or joy or turmoil or any, I mean, any word that could, could have multiple colors, uh, how you translate that versus singing it in the original like the Eskimos with a hundred different words for snow. Right. It's always a compromise. Um, I've done a few translations myself, and it's like a huge jigsaw puzzle that you have to try to match the rhythms and the word, and then there may be a, a also a poetic uh, aspect to it. So it's, just, it's very, very difficult to get right. So going back to the book, uh, so much, you, you mentioned so much of Ryan's success was due to having great teachers and caring teachers at the right place in the right time. Um, and certainly, you know, education and schools are troubled nowadays, and we, we are constantly trying, our city and city government, trying to do what we can to make school the best we can. What do you feel the role of a teacher is, and how has it changed over your uh, careers as teachers? Well, I think as far as vocal studies go, it's a one-on-one -on -one teaching situation, which in a way can be the best of times or the worst of times. Um, uh, you have a very close relationship with your student. One of the things about singing that is so fascinating is that it's your breath. The energy source for singing is the breath and for speaking too. But when your breath is what's what you're working with and you're learning how to use your breath correctly, it's a very personal thing. You know, somebody could say, um, I don't like your dress. And you would, might be a little annoyed. But if someone says to you, I don't like your voice, that hurts. 
because they're saying, I don't like the way your breath comes out of your body, and I don't like the way your vocal cords vibrate. It is so personal, and that personal um, aspect of it is difficult sometimes for teachers and for students. One of the things we always say is that you have to be your students, you have to be friendly with your student, but not your student's friend. Because if you have to say something negative or in a school situation give them a bad grade, they will misinterpret that and say, well, you th I thought you were my friend and you liked me. So with singing, we have to be very, very careful. Ryan was so, so fortunate because he found someone who, or more than one person really, who believed in him and helped support him. And that, that changed his life. Yeah, I think... We have to give credit to him for the ability to work through all of that. He's sort of a poster child for everything that could go wrong and everything that could go right uh, at various points in his career path. Uh, certainly, we know that um, this is cutting out a little bit. Uh, certainly, we know that it takes a great deal of patience. That one interview that. Uh, that they were talking about in the book, the thing about Madamina, just that in itself is so frustrating. Um, so think of that on a daily basis and to have the fortitude to get through that and know that there's something better at the end of it, that's very admirable, I think. Well, and it seems that the voice is such an individual thing. And even as you grow, get older, grow, are heavier or thinner or taller or whatever, or older, the voice, it's not just like playing a musical instrument. It's not like playing a violin where at least it's the same violin. Well, even, even there, there are vi variations, but it's not like playing a clarinet or something. No. Your voice is uniquely you. Yes. In fact, it is as unique as a fingerprint. Yeah, and they use voice prints in criminal trials and they're equally effective because nobody else is going to have the same voice. Yeah, and then all the other things. You know, you, you don't know how a voice is going to mature. Uh, there are people who are wonderful singers at 18, and at 28, they're finished, and vice versa, who are not very good at 18. At 28, they're wonderful. And so. women have it a little bit harder, unfortunately. Um, as far as singers go, there are, of course, more sopranos than any other voice type. And um, if you have 25 singers, you'll probably have 18 sopranos and three mezzos. <laughs> Here's some understanding laughter there. Three mezzos, a few tenors, and a baritone, and maybe, if you're lucky, a bass. So it's harder for women. And also, women don't sing as long as men do. It's not as short a career as a gymnast or as a ballerina, but certainly by about 50, a woman, even a well-established uh, international artist is kind of beginning to wind down, where men can still go on quite a bit longer, particularly the basses. They can sometimes go into their 70s. So it's a, a career that takes a lot of time to train for, and then it's not an especially long career. I have several colleagues who are about my age who are still singing very actively professionally. And I think when we come back to the book, um, we need to also point out that one of the advantages that Ryan Speedo Green had was that his is a very unusual voice type. A very low bass with a high extended top register, and you don't find that very often. Apparently a very fine quality. And so for the people in the opera business 
who are not philanthropists, they are businessmen, um, this seemed to be worth spending the time and effort to develop because it was such an unusual talent. Plus, he had a real native talent for, um, for acting and performing. And those two, uh, those two things put together made him very unusual. So speaking of uh, guiding in, in particular, have you had any students that were worth the extra effort that where you really had to intervene but, but did a Pygmalion and trans were able to transform them? Yeah, I, I, yes, but I don't, I don't think it's ever a Pygmalion. I think it has to be within the person. And I think this book is, is very um, descriptive of that in terms of, of Ryan Green's process. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, I, I can think of one young man who's uh, currently uh, uh, in the Young Artist Program at Kansas City Opera. Um, he comes from a very modest family. Um, didn't have much training to begin with, fabulous voice, got very good training, and we worked with him a lot just on the sort of peripheral things. How do you prepare a role? This was all new to him. And so the first time that he worked for us, he was kind of unprepared. But, you know, we said, okay, that's something he can learn, and we worked with him more, and I, I think he's well on his way now. And we uh, were able to arrange a scholarship for him to study in Italy with us in the summer. And we've been, it's very gratifying to find a young person who works so hard and improves so much. And we do that over our careers whenever we were teaching. We've done that frequently. We want to pass the torch. So what about students on the other side where the parents are doing all of the work rather than the, <laughs> the students doing all of the work? Well, actually, it's the student who ends up standing up there singing. So in a way, the, that we don't come across that so much because <laughs> the parent's not going to get up and sing. So we're, we're lucky in that respect. <laughs> so, um, so, so Ryan had a, a background that was troubling and violent and painful and, and all of that. How much of a, a performer, an actor, a singer, an opera singer, how much of a performer's experience has to come from within? I mean, do you have to go through pain to able to portray it on the stage? No, I mean, you're, you're, you come from theater as well. So you don't have to murder somebody to play a murderer. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's good actually, yeah. Um, no, but you have to have a capacity, and I think it's something that is rather missing nowadays, a capacity for empathy. So to use that same analogy, you have to be able to figure out what the murderer was feeling, what drove him to do that. And it's that process of being able to um, get into somebody else's skin. I often talk about, and I used to do this in, in university uh, when I was teaching opera workshop classes, about the, where you flip the switch and become the performer, which is very different than your private persona. And I would do that for them, and they'd sort of be startled because it's a big change. All of a sudden, much more energy is flowing, and you're somebody else. You know, and, and you had that experience watching me on stage sometimes. You'd say, I don't know that person. You know, so. 
So when we were uh, we were talking on the phone, um, you uh, just were talking about your son and uh, how he did not become an opera singer uh, because you the word was striking. The word you used was inhuman uh, because the process of becoming an opera singer was so difficult. So uh, and 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 I, th I think. I think that's not only the talent, the language and the tone of the voice and the acting, so it, you have to be a triple, quadruple threat in all of that. Um, but also the opera, uh, the world of opera is a tough business to get into. And certainly that was, um, I mean, the, the story of, uh, of Ryan saying, oh, well, you should sing Old Man River. Um, yeah. when it would, and and it, I've had this same conversation. African-American bass baritones. You know, that's, that's a trap. And you want to try to avoid it, and yet, on the other hand, you know, if, if uh, EMI is uh, paying you, you know, $50,000 to record Showboat, eh, you think twice about it. So how do you think the opera world is changing? And, and how have you seen it change, and where do you think it's going? The opera world is changing in many ways. When we were young singers, in, many, in some instances, it hasn't changed at all. And sometimes young singers nowadays say, oh, things are so different, things, you know, it's so hard now. It was hard when we were young, and it was very hard when we were young, and we had a lot of advantages, and it's still hard today. I think one of the things that has changed is that, that the uh, sense of loyalty is much less. It used to be that if you were singing, as Edward did, they sang many productions in Dallas, and he, and which is actually why we live here, because we li we're from New York, and we, as you can probably tell from my accent, <laughs> but, um, but whenever Edward came down to sing with the Dallas Opera, he'd come back home after six weeks away, and he'd say, oh, I really had a nice time. I really like Dallas, and the people are so nice. And um, it was Jonathan Pell, some of you know, who was the um, artistic director of the Dallas Opera for 30 years. And he liked working with Edward and respected him and hired him frequently over, like, for nine, eight or nine productions over maybe 10 or 15 years. Nowadays, that doesn't seem to happen. It's more the flavor of the week. You know, who's the new star? Who's the one that everybody's crazy about for two seasons? And then they're singing well, but there's somebody new coming along. That's been a change. Yeah, we know a young mezzo-soprano. Um, I actually haven't heard her sing, but I know her. And uh, apparently, she's very good. She did three years of young artist programs and a couple of little roles. And now she has no work and is basically going back to school to get a doctorate. And that's not atypical. There's a lot of that going around. Also, we started our careers in Germany. And they, uh, at the time, there were approximately 56 opera houses in the German-speaking countries of Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. And uh, compared to the United States at that time, there were probably 10 over here. So. The thing to do after you finished your training, and university training, and bachelor's and master's degrees, you would go to Germany and hopefully get a job there, which is what we did, and got a lot of experience singing in German opera houses. And then the singers would come back to America and get work in the bigger opera houses. Nowadays, that has changed because um, there are still wonderful opera houses in Europe, but it's not just Americans coming over. It's um, all the former Eastern Bloc countries, all of those singers are now singing beautifully. 
and um, the singers from China and Japan are now all singing beautifully there too. So we were a little luckier when we were there. It was a smaller pool of singers. Nowadays, the uh, singers get out of their master's degrees mostly. They finish their master's. And they, if they're lucky, they get into what's called a young artist program. And a lot of opera companies, Dallas and, and uh, Fort Worth and even Shreveport, even the smaller companies, and of course the Met and San Francisco and all, have these programs where the younger singers do outreach and they take children's operas to all the schools. They get a lot of performing experience. Maybe they get to do a small role in the big productions. They get to meet all the singers and, and work with the coaches. But they're really not building their career because they're not getting experience singing major roles. And if you haven't sung the role, nobody wants to hire you to sing it because they won't take a chance. So that's kind of the, the double-edged sword there. You get paid, you work for a few years, but then when you finish and you go, say, back to your home or back to New York, nobody knows you anymore. So then you're almost starting all over again. On the other hand, if you start by going to New York and doing all the auditions you possibly can, you probably won't get a lot of work at first, so then you have to have a job doing something else to support yourself. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, one thing I feel about um, the opera world nowadays, and this may be just my personal feeling, I can't really substantiate this, but um, I feel that there are fewer individuals amongst the performers than there used to be. And I think that may be a reason why Ryan Speedo Green has been successful, is that he was an individual voice, an individual talent. Maybe there were some rough edges that needed to be polished and smoothed, but there was this tremendous natural talent. Um, and that's something we don't see as often. We see a lot of what I call cookie cutter singers. They all cut, they've been well trained and they all sing pretty well and they're not really, um, they're not really overwhelming me with uh, their ability to tell the story or um, their, their natural talent. So I think that's a little different also. Fabulous. Thank you. So uh, if a student like Ryan, if Ryan came to you, if Ryan showed up on, on, at your school, what, uh, what advice would you give a, a young Ryan Green? Well, I think it's important to be very supportive, and that's what he hit, fortunately for him and fortunately for all of us, because he is now uh, a working professional. Um, you have to be very supportive. I think we would say all the same things. You know, the, the book, really, it's very interesting. Uh, um, there are vocal teachers that are working with him on the purity of his vowels. There are uh, diction coaches that are working with him on making sure that he understands exactly what he's saying. And that's all the stuff that we do um, with our singers um, every day. So tell us about the summer intensive in Italy. Oh, we have a wonderful time. Um, for the past 12 years, Edward and I have been doing a program in Italy. Uh, in, right now, we're doing it in a, the beautiful town of Urbino, which is on the Adriatic side of Italy. And we hold auditions in the fall, and we take up to 15 singers. These are uh, uh, undergraduates and postgraduate students. And we all go over to Italy for a month. And they have intensive Italian language study. So from 9 to 1 every day, five days a week, they study Italian with 
no, Italian no teachers, English of course. Spoken. No English, no. And then in the afternoon, they have coachings and voice lessons and rehearsals. We do three concerts while we're there in different cities. And we have some fun, too. It's not all work. But it's an amazing experience for them. And so many of this, the singers say, this has changed my life because I've, lived, I've never lived in another country before, learning the language and uh, understanding how to use it when I sing in Italian, working with Italian coaches. So that's one of our um, most fun things to do, I'd have to say. And the students just improve tremendously, and it's a joy to see that. One of the things that I like most about that program, and this comes to the, uh, the idea of it changing their lives, not maybe even so much musically, but the sense that they have learned what it is like to be in a foreign culture, not to speak the language well, to be able to have to struggle when you go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or whatever it may be. Um, and then when they come back to the United States, when they come back to the United States, they are able to um, maybe have a little bit more empathy for those people that we meet in our country who are in that same position. So I think it broadens their world view in a very profound way, maybe in a more important way than even what we're doing musically. So we have a few minutes left. We can open it up for some questions from the audience. Are you what seeing more of acceptance of English operas as the more and more of the world question. has seen them? Yes, I would say definitely. Um, most of the new operas that are done that are written in the English language uh, will go anywhere around the world, and they will be sung in English. Um, that's you know what Heather was talking about before about the change in attitude really happened when surtitles came in. But as you're pointing out also, English has become the international business language. I remember the last time I was in Prague, I heard more English spoken on the street than Czech. So, you know, I think absolutely um, opera written in English goes all over the world and is performed in English. English opera singers go to Europe to be vetted. Are the European opera singers coming here to be vetted? No, no, no generally no. not. <laughs> they come, of course, as established artists. Of course, we have international, which is wonderful to have that international um, artists come to us too. But um, no, you don't see young singers coming but, over here. Yeah, and, and European singers. And that speaks to, to what um, Heather was saying, that, um, that American singers are required to sing in all the major languages, so at least four languages. When I was at the Met, I, I sang mostly in German, Czech, and Russian. Um, but mostly in, in Europe, German singers sing in German. Italian singers sing in Italian. French singers sing in French. So in, the sense, in that sense, there really isn't a need for them to leave their native country. You know, we have a very good friend, an Italian tenor, who's singing all over the world now. And he speaks English, and he actually started his opera experience singing in Dresden in Germany, which he hated. Um, and, you know, he, he sung, I think, one opera that wasn't in Italian. And he was talking to me about it. He said, oh, it was so hard. You know, I said, yeah, well, welcome to our world. We sing everything in a foreign language. If we're lucky, we get an opera that's in English. You know, so um, it, it's very different. 
So I know I don't think there is that same feeling that they want to come to the United States. <laughs> what is the easiest and most difficult opera to sing? Wow. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think there is an easy one. <laughs> they all seem hard when you're working at them. <laughs> right. Um, or they're made hard in some way. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't tell you what the hardest would be. I can tell you the hardest one that I've sung probably was um, uh, Shostakovich opera in Russian. So it was relatively modern music, challenging rhythms. And then Russian is not one of the languages that I speak conversationally. So it was a challenge. I think my favorite opera to sing is, is um, a little different. My favorite opera to sing as a performer was um, Susanna by Carlisle Floyd. The character of Susanna changes in a basically 24-hour period from a young, happy 18-year-old to a uh, disillusioned outcast whose brother turned into a murderer. So as an actress, it's a phenomenal thing to sing. But I think my favorite opera is Don Giovanni. And that would be one of my favorites. The other one I would say would be uh, Falstaff by Verdi. It's just one of the great masterpieces, and I can't think of anything that isn't in that opera. So it's, you know, fulfills everything. I just want to say that one of the things as um, since we are working with our small opera company now, Opera and Concert, and we've had our whole careers have been in the operatic world, it's been fantastic. It is such a ride. And when you're standing on stage and the whole orchestra is there and the audience is there and you're in whatever kind of crazy costume they put you in and you're singing, there's nothing in the world like it. And I think singers are so fortunate because it's almost like I don't know because I don't do drugs, but it must be like a drug. It must be the high you get when you're performing and the adrenaline's going and everything's working is so phenomenal and so wonderful. That's what keeps singers singing, even though there are a lot of problems. And hopefully, that's what keeps audiences coming back. When we have a really good performance, we are on the same wavelength with the audience. We're telling the story. We're encompassing them in our breath energy. The energy from our breath just encompasses or embraces the audience, and we're sharing this moment. When you experience that, there's nothing in the world like it. And whenever I think, what would I rather have been than a singer? I can never think of anything. That's why old singers never retire. <laughs> they just keep doing another farewell tour. <laughs> so uh, as we close, uh, tell us uh, what's going on next with Opera and Concert and where we can find out more information. Well, Opera and Concert's next performance is November 17th. That's a Friday night. And it's, as Edward mentioned, it's called School Days, D-A-Z-E. And um, you can just go online to operaandconcert.org. Make sure you write .org. .com is another company in Canada, and it's a long trip. But anyway, Opera and Concert is right here in Dallas, and you will get to hear some of the most wonderful singers. Dallas is, DFW area, has a wealth of professional singers who are outstanding. And, you know, we have such a vibrant arts community, and in order to keep it vibrant, we need to have something for the artists to do. So many of the wonderful singers here graduate, get doctorates at UNT and SMU and all over, and they leave. And we don't get the benefit of it. We need to have opportunities for them to perform to get them to stay. And that's one of the goals of opera and concert. 
So we'll finish with our top 10 shorties questions before we bring Kitty back. So these are just quick answers, just the first thing that pops into your head. Tacos or hamburgers? Tacos. Tacos. Your favorite flavor of ice cream? Pistachio. This isn't my favorite, but I have to say it anyway. Purple. <laughs> it's my granddaughter's favorite ice cream. And she lives in California, so it's um, a lavender honey ice cream. Only in California. Your favorite opera composer? Puccini. Wagner. <laughs> Your favorite opera character? Susanna in uh, Marriage of Figaro. The Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building? Empire State Building. We're yeah, New Yorkers, what can be. we say? <laughs> Bach or Beethoven? Both. Yeah, I, I can't give one up. The last TV show you binge watched? We don't usually watch no. TV. <laughs> Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. If you were transformed into a musical instrument, which would you be? Cello. Oh, interesting. Huh, what does that leave me? Oh, hmm. Yeah, no, I think trombone. And your favorite season of the year? Spring. Fall. Very well. Thank you to Edward and Heather and for being here.